This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Rob Tombrella, pastor at Grace Church. Good morning. My name is Rob. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I just want to welcome all of you, and if you're a guest here again, I just want to be a voice to say thank you for coming and joining us this Sunday. Last week was Easter, it was Resurrection Sunday, and we heard a wonderful message on being uh, resurrected in Christ and united to Christ by faith. And what that means is that something gets uh, declared over us, and it's a big uh, theological term that says justification. It basically means that you're guilt-free, and that's what we the, we talked about at Good Fridays, so we talked about at Easter. And when we were talking about kind of this, the next Sunday after Easter, uh, when Craig and I were talking weeks ago, was how do we, how do we live guilt-free? So if we could take a Sunday and talk about what it means to be justified, let's take another Sunday and just talk about what does it mean to live like that? What does it mean to live in the good of that, in the joy of, of justification? If we grasp that, what, what effect does it have in the present? In other words, how does something that's been done for us in the past have an abiding result in the present. The resurrection of Jesus and our justification in Him, how does that affect us right now, right here in the present? So what I wanted to do is just go to the very next section of the Bible in Romans 5. Last week we looked at Romans 4. This week we're going to look at Romans 5. And I want to start just kind of where we left off last week at verse uh, 23 of chapter 4. And then I'm going to read through verse 11 and preach on 1 through 11 of chapter 5. So let's read that together, pray, and then we'll get started. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For... While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Father, this passage is so, so rich and so dense with, with joyful truth, with liberating freedom truths, God. And we just ask that you, by your spirit, Lord, would awaken in us true faith right now. Lord, as I preach and as we just go through this passage, Lord, would you awaken in somebody who does not have faith in the room or listening, uh, true faith, God, through your Holy Spirit, that you would just come on in and invade them and adopt them and reconcile them to yourself, Lord, and for everybody else, Lord, in varying ways. But we ask for big ways, Lord God, that you would reawaken the faith that you have put into us, Lord, in the power of your love, in the reconciling favor and the grace of God that is over our lives in Christ Jesus and through Christ Jesus, not based solely upon our works, but based upon the perfect work of Jesus Christ. Would you just unite our hearts to you? through this text we ask in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Um, again, here's the question. How does the resurrection of Jesus, which verse 23 or 25 of chapter 4 says, justifies us. He who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised up 
for our justification? How does the resurrection of Jesus have an abiding effect on our lives right now today? This Sunday, this afternoon, Monday, Tuesday, this very week. What's the present change that's supposed to radically take place in us because of the resurrection of Jesus and the justifying work of of us being in him by faith alone? Three things from this passage, verses 1 through 11, and it goes like this. Here's our markers. Peace with God. Peace with God. Grace from God. And reconciliation to God. If you've been raised up in the church world, those, those can all sound like really churchy words. And what I hope to do right now is unpack every single one of those phrases so that you and I feel the richness of what I'm talking about when we say peace, grace, and reconciliation. And what I mean when we say with God, from God, and to God. So let's just get started with the very first one. Peace with God. Look at verse 1. Therefore... Therefore, what he just said is that Jesus has been raised up for our justification. Now he's going to say there's something now that's supposed to affect us in the present. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So note the past tense and how he connects the past tense with the present tense. Since we have been. Everybody see that in your text? Since. We have been justified. That's a past tense. Jesus lives the life we could never live and he takes responsibility for all our evil wickedness and he dies on the cross for us. He's risen from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit in the love of the Father and there he stands in his righteousness and he ascends on high and he pours his Holy Spirit out on all those who put faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone and they are justified when that happens. The the moment that you did that, you were justified. And what we talked about last week is that means you're declared guilt-free in God's sight. You're a sinner. You are a sinner, a wicked one at that. Every one of you and me, your, your mom, your dad, the Pope, the person that you looked up to the most in your life, sinners before God. But we as sinners get something declared over us when we are united to Jesus Christ by faith alone. And that is justification. You get to be declared not guilty. But it means something more than that. Not only not guilty because of the responsibility that Jesus took on the cross for your sins. So men, every time that you've lusted, Jesus was punished for your lust. Every time that you've envied or wished you were in a kind of different situation and you coveted, Jesus was, was uh, condemned as a covetous person. Not because he ever actually committed covetousness or greed or idolatry or lust or any of those things. Not that he ever looked upon pornography like many men and women today have, but he takes responsibility for those things when he goes to the cross so that you and I can be declared not guilty for those things that you and I have done. That's good news. Not guilty. Free from the guilt of the things that you've done. That's what justification means. But it also means all the righteous life that Jesus lived for his 30 plus years. The reason that he came to be a human being, to take on the human nature was to do what you and I could never do. And that's to live perfectly godly before God. To love God with all of his heart, mind, soul. And he did it. He pulled it off. So that anybody who puts faith in Jesus not only is declared not guilty but is also declared righteous, holy. And God's not looking at your intrinsic, internal goodness and saying, ah, I see it, there it is, right there. Pull that out and let me declare that over you now because that's what you are. No, he looks at the righteousness of Jesus Christ and says, he is righteous, he is holy, he is clean, he is pure, he is lovely, he is beautiful, he is noble, and he is moral. He's all those things and a thousand things more than that. And, G- and God looks at his son and he says, anybody, any single person who repents of their sins and puts faith in that perfect good one, the only good one, gets his goodness attributed and accounted in their moral bank account before God. So you're not just declared guilt-free from eternal, everlasting, infinite numbers of sins from God. 
But the righteousness of God is deposited in your bank account that you can draw on for all of eternity. This is what we mean when we say justification. This is why we have to think about hard words in the scripture when it shows up like this, justification. And we just run through that. We need to know what does it mean when he says justification? Well, he talks about what's the abiding result of this justification because of the resurrection of Jesus. He rose from the dead and he is alive right now from the dead. Jesus is alive and this living Savior has this abiding result in our lives. Since we have been justified by faith, not by works, not by your human effort, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, this peace is not something that... um, is this internal feeling. That's not what the text is talking about. And this is good news because some of you right now, you're not feeling it. If you could be uh, just real honest right now, you're saying, I don't feel peace with God at all. I don't even know what peace feels like anymore. It's been a long time since I've experienced any kind of peace. Well, this peace isn't something that you're experiencing this morning, maybe. This peace is primarily an objective peace outside of you that God is experiencing towards you. This is something God is experiencing towards you and me if you put your faith in Jesus alone and repented of your works before God. He is experiencing towards you peace. You were at war. You were an enemy of the state with God. And now he's looking upon you and is experiencing peace towards you and love and joy in you and enjoyment of you. This is what we mean when we say peace. And this is what the Bible means when the Bible says peace with God. There's been a, a peace that's been declared over your life that is unlike any peace that the world offers. Justification. So you get this, and I get this, is sinners are declared righteous. It's very mysterious, to be sure. It's worthy of our worship. We, we don't just check it off the box and we've got that whole thing figured out. No, sinners are sainted before God. The, the, the verb form of this in the Greek is actually righteous. You and I are righteous, if that's a verb, before God. Declared, made to be, not imagining. God's not imagining something. He actually makes you to be righteous by faith alone before God. And this is the only way anybody is declared righteous before God. Every organized religion in the world tries some way to be justified before God apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it fails every single time. So one of the fastest growing organized religions in the world is Islam. Young men are attracted to Islam because they're looking for a strong and mighty God. Because what they've heard of the God of the Bible maybe is an idolatrous, weak form of the real thing of who God is described in scripture in Islam you do good works according to the Quran and uh, you are slowly justified before God slowly maybe you work hard enough and uh, your good works get put into a scale and it's like this and hopefully at the end of your life your good works outweigh your bad works. That's the kind of the essence of how you know you have eternal security in, in Islam. And if you're wrestling with Islam, I would ask you, and I would ask any Muslim today, what happens with those bad works? There is no answer in Islam of what happens to those bad works. We just hope that this God uh, looks upon just the good things, but that would be an unjust God for him to look only upon the good things. You understand, that would be unjust of him to look only upon the good things. What do you do with this? There's no answer for that in Islam. What do you do before a holy God when this is your life? Eastern religion, same thing. You slowly achieve acceptance with the deity of nirvana, sometimes the reincarnation, but a whole lot of work on your part. A whole lot. Mormonism, same thing. You become accepted. You become acceptable to God by keeping the rules. Sometimes they're clear, sometimes nebulous. Catholicism, same way. You're slowly justified. The teaching is slow justification, slow acceptance before God through the sacraments. Take the pilgrimages 
do your confessions, all the sacraments laid out for you. We can pick on the Southern Pie Christianity. That's what I describe it. That's how I use the term. Southern Christianity sometimes slips into this kind of thinking. They dismiss the gospel and start to, you can kind of start to think if, if I just attend enough programs and write enough checks and attend all the Bible studies that I'm supposed to do, if I really get good at my church commitments, I'll be slowly accepted before God. And what all those things do is, the illustration is the, what all those things have in common is that justification comes like an IV bag in the hospital. So you go to the hospital and you need the medicine and they hook up an IV bag over you and they connect to that IV bag. A needle goes into your arm and slowly that medicine seeps into your body and makes you healthy. That's what all of these have in common in their form of justification. It's a slow drip into you, hopefully making you more acceptable before God. But you understand if that were true, Jesus wouldn't have had to lived the perfect life on your behalf, right? He, he wouldn't have had to have lived or died for you if you could be slowly justified through your commitments and be declared righteous. But the biggest concern I have for us today is not these forms of organized religion, as scary and as dangerous as they are. Because I I think there'd be people even here this morning or listening that would read verse 1 and say, what's the problem? I have peace with God. What's the big deal about justification? Why do I need to be justified before God? What's peace with God? That sounds foreign to me. That's something I experience Right now, right? I'm I'm at peace with God. And the reason that they they think that way is because of what what researchers have defined as the greatest religion in America today, which is described as moralistic, therapeutic deism. This guy Christian Smith at the University of Notre Dame went among 3,000 students. This was done about six years ago and uh, asked them common questions about religion and most of these people kind of describe their version is a, a version of Christianity and, uh, and what they put out is, is what they described as moralistic, that's doing good things before God, therapeutic, that's a self-improvement program, deism. God kind of shows up occasionally but he's, he's off in the distance as all good watchmakers are. They wind up the world and they step out and he can sometimes be called upon but he's not really involved in our lives. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Here's the five tenets. This is what they put together. This is what young people believe. This is what the generation believes right now. Maybe you today. This this would summarize your beliefs about God. Here it is. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Number two, this God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. That's true of, of, that's true of thousands of people in Frisco. Make no mistake about it, Frisco. Just Frisco proper is about 120,000 people. Most people that you live around, that you work with, that you know and talk to, and maybe here today, that are even attending church, believe that tenant. Good people go to heaven when they die. If you love America and you mow your yard and you're passionate about self-improvement, Or if you've ever been a victim of anything or suffered anything in your life, you are automatically justified before God. It's kind of like the song by the artist Pink when she describes it like this in her hit single, Perfect. If you ever feel, let me put it in context for those who are Pink fans in here, pretty, pretty please, if you ever, ever feel that you are less than 
perfect. We'll leave out the expletive. You are perfect to me. Well, don't good people go to heaven when they die? Yes, they do. Let's just be clear about that. Good people do go to heaven when they die. Here's the problem. There aren't any good people. There just aren't any. Look around the world. There aren't any. Look to yourself. You're not one. Romans 3.23 All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's your pastor. That's the pope. That's the bishop. That's the religious guru. That's the Tony Robbinses of the world and the Angelina Jolies of the world and all of those things. Uh, all have fallen short of the glory of God. That's every single person. Everybody's in the same snake pit, all hissing at each other, needing something from outside of us because we can't reform ourselves. We can't do it. There's nothing in us that's able to rescue us. Somebody on the outside's got to come into the snake pit and pull us out and get us free. And that's the second part of Romans 3. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are, can anybody finish it? Justified. Justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in not you, but Jesus Christ. Justification, being declared righteous when we're not, when we're, when we're sinful and we've fallen short of the glory of God so many times. I think if God were just to allow us the freedom to see, to actually see how many people in our world, in, in, our, in our neighborhood, and the people that we work with, and our family members, really ascribe to this Greatest religion in America, moralistic, therapeutic, deism. This this blend, if 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 I can use these names, this blend. You just take one part Joel Osteen and one part Oprah Winfrey. Um, one part Brad Pitt, Brad Bradgelina, or whatever it is for good causes. I'm not trying to pick on their. These are people doing some good things. I'm not picking on the acts themselves, but it's the philosophy and the theology and you mix these things up together and you put it into a drink and you serve it up from the pulpit. You serve it up in in Sunday school lessons and you serve it up in Bible studies and you serve it up in just the, the, the the Christian speech of the world and that's what you end up with oftentimes. The self improvement program that we're really just not as bad as we we um the the we're really just diamonds before God. And the cross just makes the diamond glitter. Because we're really just really okay with God and really righteous before God. And, and what's the big deal in the death and resurrection of Jesus anyway? We have an individual in our church who um, for a season of his life got pulled into uh, Mormonism. And if you're, if you're being pulled into Mormonism, my heart goes out to you and what... The, the righteousness and the justification that you're trying to earn on your own. Well, he, he, get, he got pulled into this false religion. And uh, he was driving down the road one day, and, a, and this Mormon friend of his uh, looked over at him, and he made the statement, Man, you're so righteous. Just kind of said that to him. And he remembers agreeing with them, yes, because of the good things that he was doing. But in his heart, he said, I knew that wasn't true. Of myself, I, I knew I wasn't a righteous person, and I'm agreeing. But I knew there's something wrong about that. I mean, maybe God is just going to free some of us in here today, where you would step into the freedom of saying, "I'm an awful person." <laughs> there's freedom there. There is joy in, in in recognizing your place without the righteousness of God declared over you. How many thousands of people in this city? believe that form of religion. I mean, what are, we, what are we called to do in terms of that? What kind of risks are we called to make? What kind of sacrifices and, and financial leverage are we called to make in our neighborhoods and in our communities and in our city and in our region? 
for the sake of people who are lost and trapped in this religion that offers no life. And that gets us to the next point. Grace from God. We're going to move quick in these last two points here. Grace from God. Look at verse 2. Through him, we have also... Can you circle that word? Because he's going to go into something that we've got to hear. Through him, we have also also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. What he's about to go into is an aspect of grace that we have got to hold on to and believe because sometimes our ideas of grace end up in the category of pardon. And grace is never less than pardon. What I've been talking about, being declared guilt-free, is pardon. We need the pardoning grace of God declared over us. We need to know right now that we are guilt-free and righteous before Him so that we can approach Him. So that we can ask God for His forgiveness in our relational union and know that we are forgiven because He forgave us. We need to know that we have this pardoning grace of God, but sometimes that's all we think about in terms of grace, and it and we empty this word grace of its of, of its fuller expression in the New Testament. So sometimes when we we even the way we use the word grace in our culture, if you get a, a lot of debt and the lending institution says, "Well, you're not you don't have to pay the debt back right now," they say, "We'll give you a grace period," which for them just means you're going to owe that you know in six months or something like that, which. That's really not even grace there. Um, you get a grace period. If you're you know, speeding home on the way home and a police officer pulls you over and you think that you're going to get a ticket and then you cry and he lets you off the hook, you call up your friend and say, man, I, I was about to get a ticket, but the officer gave me grace. And what you mean is that he gave me pardon. He pardoned me from something that I deserved and something that I, I, I should have got a ticket, but I didn't get it. That's true of grace. But there's another aspect here that he's talking about. The grace in which we stand is a fresh, constant, increasing, active power flowing to you through the resurrected Jesus Christ. Constant, active power. So grace pardons us and, and, we, and there might be somebody in here that you just need to hold on to that. Hold on to the pardoning grace of God right now. But grace not only pardons, it empowers. Pardon and power. The pardoning grace of God flows into the powerful grace of God. And maybe that's a new category. There's past grace for us in Jesus. There's present grace for us in Jesus. And there's future grace in us, towards us through Jesus. That transforms us more and more into his image. So here's what he says. He says, this grace we we are standing in, in verse 2. This grace in which we stand and we rejoice. Okay, so what's the grace, the active, powerful work of Jesus through us doing? Well, here's here's what he's saying. Rejoice. We we rejoice. Uh, Don't minimize the power of God's grace in you to rejoice because he's going to say what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about rejoicing in money because a lot of times the gospel is you get Jesus and Jesus will give you money or some form of it, some form of prosperity. That's not the joy that Paul's talking about. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And what he means by that is that At the return of Jesus Christ, the glory of God is going to be revealed and you and I will see with great joy in us and not terror, the glory of Jesus and be transformed into his image. That's what 1 John 3 says. Beloved, we are God's children now. That's justification. We are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So note that we are God's children now, John says. But when we see him, we're going to be transformed into his very image when he comes in his glory. So there's this future hope. Paul says this grace in which we stand, this active grace 
in which we stand. This gives us a, a hope in the future. That's going to happen for us. And we get so caught up in the abyss of the present, the conundrum, swallow of the present, that we, we forget just a few short years, just a few more weary days, and then, as the old song goes, we fly away into His glory and into His transforming presence. So there's this future hope, but, but notice what else? More than that. Oh, please, let's, 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 oh, let's just hang out in verse 3. More than that. I mean, can there be more than that? More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Islam's not going to offer you that. Moralistic therapeutic deism cannot supernaturally, miraculously deliver somebody in their sufferings into joy. This is what God offers to us in this grace in which we stand. There are many of you right now that you are suffering. And it does no good for somebody to stand up here and say, you're not suffering. You're okay. And it really adds insult to injury for me to stand up here and say, just believe in Jesus and He'll deliver you out of the suffering. That's not the gospel. That's not hope. This is it right here. No religion offers you joy in suffering supernaturally. We rejoice in our sufferings. How? How do we do that? Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Well, like we're back at hope. I mean, I thought I was going to get the, 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 the perfect job or I thought I was going to get the perfect spouse or I thought I was going to get the perfect kids or I thought I was going to, you know, I thought that was what I was going to, if I did all of these things and, and I built up endurance and all those things, I'd land at something other than this. And this is what the scripture offers to us and what Christ offers to us is more hope, more hope. Now, why do we need hope? Why do we need more hope? I mean, we've got hope in the future, And why does this transforming grace, this active grace that's helping us to rejoice in our sufferings just land us right back at hope? Well, he he anticipates that question and he goes on to say, hope does not put us to shame. In other words, somebody's asking the question when they hear this is that, well, surely that's going to disappoint me. That's not tangible. How do I tangibly put my arms and my hands on hope? And he anticipates that question by saying, hope's not going to put you to shame. And everything else will, by the way. Everything else will disappoint you. And here's why it's not going to disappoint you. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Jesus dies and rises for our sins and then places into us in this new covenant relationship his very life and secures for us that this hope is never going to disappoint. This joy that I'm experiencing supernaturally that I, I can't explain, this peace that I'm experiencing in the midst of trial that I don't I don't. Get And when people ask me, why do I have so much joy? I can point to Jesus and I can point to the cross and the resurrection and his spirit and I can point to the church. But ultimately, I don't know how this, this joy is rising up in me in the midst of suffering. This is not going to ever disappoint you like money will and house will and car will and friends will and status will and success will. This hope does not put us to shame because this hope is built on something outside of us. It's God's love that's been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. God is given to sinners. Note that. He is saying, you and I who deserve to be separated from God for all of eternity, he's saying 
Hope in the reality that you're going to be in the presence of a God who has justified you and reconciled you to himself. And not only that, he's giving you God. Right now. That's why Paul's saying, more than that, I've got God. Like right now. I shouldn't have God, but I've got God. Why do I rejoice in my sufferings? It's because I've got God. I have Him. I have Him. I know Him. I don't just know about Him. Demons know a lot about Him. He's talking about a knowing that is a relationship, a union with the actual God of creation and salvation. This is grace. That's why Paul can say in Romans 6, don't let this idea of the dominion of sin take place over you to where you say, man, I can't, I can't beat pornography. And I'm drawn to this person that I work with or this lady or I just can't get my mind off money or there's just this cloak of sorrow over me that I can't break. Now Paul would say, on your own you can't, but you're not on your own. You're not. You're under grace. That's what he said in Romans 6. Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God, to those who have been brought from death to life. In other words, your identity is radically different and just be what you are. Present yourselves to this God who has justified you and called you to himself. And he says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but you're under grace. There's this new authority in your life, and he says, you are under and surrounded by the grace of Jesus Christ. You're in Christ, and Christ is in you through the Holy Spirit. You are, that's where you are. You don't know where you are? You wake up Monday, I'm not feeling it. Well, that's where you are. You're right there. Only that, sounds, that seems kind of small. Uh, you're actually like there, okay? In the grace of God, this is broad. Let's make that broad. Let's make it as big as we possibly can. Because the grace of God is infinite and he has infinitely placed you in Christ. And he says, I don't care how you feel on Tuesday when the temptation comes. Well, he does care. But don't let that define you. This defines you. You're in grace and under grace. I got uh, little boys that just love to play, uh, to take on a new identity through the form of superheroes. And I love this because I do the same thing. If they, if they made a, a life, a, an adult version of a Spider-Man outfit, I don't know if I wouldn't buy one just to play with them. These boys, man, we've, you pick your, uh, your superhero, I've probably got an outfit in a big bucket in, in the kids' playroom. Superman, Spider-Man, Batman's all there, Iron Man. Uh, and they just take their pick. And they've been doing that throughout the years. So I have seven, six, and a three-year-old. And so I have all different sizes. Um, and I have one little boy who is now six who loves to go and get the original Spider-Man outfit that he got when he was like three. And this outfit is raggedy and, when he, and torn and dirty and grimy and a little gross, if I could be honest. And he puts this thing on and it's tight and he walks out and he wants to play Spider-Man. But I'm like, brother, you can't, you can't be a web crawler. You can't climb on anything with that outfit on. Good luck with that. Uh, but he just comes out in this thing and he just looks really, really silly. And uh, it's really funny. We have a good time as parents. But the reality is, is that we often do that with our old identity of sin. We, we fail to remember that we've been given a whole new wardrobe of God's grace that we have access to through the gospel and that we can place the robe of his righteousness and put on Christ Jesus and put off that old man. We can take that old outfit off. And so it's silly when, when uh, I, I see that in my four-year-old, but it's tragic when God sees that in a 35-year-old. I can say, man, that's silly. And God says, yep. Sure is. But you take off that old outfit, that old identity, and recognize that the grace in which you stand is active, powerful, right now, will not put you to shame, and you're under it. Whether you access it or not, 
You're under it. And let's close with the final thought from verses 6 through 11. We'll just speed through this. Reconciliation to God. Reconciliation to God. Reconciliation isn't a very warm word oftentimes. Oftentimes we use the word reconciliation in the terms of like there's these two, you know, business people that are just at odds with each other and you call a mediator in and you bring about reconciliation, but there's not a lot of joy in the room at the business meeting when there's that reconciliation. There might be a handshake and see you later. Uh, we're legally reconciled, but it doesn't feel warm and fuzzy. Well, I hope, I hope that uh, to dismiss that idea with this passage, let's look at verses 6 through 11. It says, For while we were still weak, he's going to rehearse the gospel once again. That's what he does. He just rehearses the gospel. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. So he says, you know, there are good uh, attributes in people, and and sometimes people uh, work up the courage, but not this kind of love. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now note the logic that he goes through in verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. This, we, we've got to see that wrath is important. If you're not under grace, if you're not in and under the authority of Jesus Christ, you're, you're living uh, under your own authority, under the wrath of God right now. You are without God and you are without hope in the world because you're trying to make yourself acceptable to God based on your works. And if you could do that, God wouldn't have had to send his son Jesus to live the life you could never live and die on the cross that you could never die. Or you will take responsibility for that eternally in hell. So uh, that's, your ch- that's your choice right now. It's before you. You can stay under the wrath of God or you can yield trust to Jesus. Verse 10, For while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So he says, right now, Jesus is alive. He, he didn't you know, die and rise and then go silent and just kind of blank out until he returns. Jesus is alive right now, and you're saved by his active life towards you. You and I, if you're a Christian by faith alone, that faith that feels so much like it's you, because it is you, that is you, but that faith that just sometimes feels like it's just me trusting in God, that's being animated right there by the life of Jesus outside of you. The active life of Jesus is giving you that faith in him. And then he says in verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So here's a status and a place that we are in with God. Now that we are reconciled, We've received reconciliation. Now, this idea of reconciliation in the the New Testament should make you feel like coming home. Don't don't think two warring people and they've just said, I forgive you, I forgive you. And now there's, you know, you're kind of reconciled, but there's just icy coldness in the air and you don't really want to talk to each other. That's not this idea of reconciliation. Other words... Other gospel words in the New Testament for this term reconciliation is the word adoption. You're brought home, literally home with God. You were an enemy with God, but by pure faith, only faith in the finished work of Jesus, he gives you his spirit and he brings you home. And he says, now... You are home with me forever and ever and ever. And the story begins for you. The family story starts with adoption. We begin to know God and love God and experience God and the fullness of Him for all time. Here's how Galatians puts it. 
this, this church in Galatia. They, they, they had the gospel, they got it, and then they just started slipping into legalism and works and just bad teachers started to flood in. And here's what Paul says to correct them. Just listen to this. Let me just write right up here, listen to this. Galatians 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. You hear the legal, forensic language? You need to be redeemed. You're under the law. And so what God does is He takes the initiative to send forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to legally forensically redeem those who were under law so that, hear this, so that you're justified so that we might receive the adoption as sons. So Mary, that legal forensic justification links us up to an adopted warm status with God. So we're legally adopted by God and reconciled. That's the idea of reconciliation. And then it gets better. And because you are sons, sons, somebody needs to say, I'm a son. I never thought it was a son, but I'm a son. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So when you're experiencing faith in Your father and experiencing a calling out to God, that's the spirit of his son in you, working, animating your faith towards your father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That's what reconciliation does. It takes enemies and makes them sons. And if you're a son, you're an heir of all things. You can't get in the world what you already have. You can't get an identity in the world if you've already been given it. There's nothing that the world has to offer you now in the gospel that you don't already have in Christ. What's the world going to offer you that you don't have right now in Jesus Christ? So this legal requirement secures a love relationship. I've experienced the beauty of adoption um, personally. Over seven years ago, my wife and I got to adopt our oldest son and... um, and what a journey into legal requirements adoption is. I'm so happy that you can go out and look at the heart gallery. And, and maybe God's calling you to begin this journey. And I was just talking to a friend over the weekend. And it is a journey of legal requirements. I can take you to my office right now and pull open file cabinets and pull out folder after folder of the legal requirements and the paperwork that was done and the checks that had to be written and the attorneys and the conversations that had to be had and all of these things all so that we could stand before a judge which we just celebrated a week ago and the judge declare to us he's yours legally finally all yours this person who doesn't share your DNA is now in your family. And in the lies of the state, he's your responsibility. And the judge slams the gavel down and we signed documents. And I have those documents to this day. I could take you to them and I could pull out those documents. And I love those documents. I mean, I, I really, I, I can go back and look at them and say, I can remember what I was thinking the whole time. I was signing those documents and those documents are, are real and active. If somebody comes and tries to say, well, he's, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think he's yours. I can show you the document right here. Oh, I was there when I was, they got it signed. I was there when the judge declared that he's mine. But at five o'clock on a weekday or whenever I get off work and I'm driving home, I'm not excited about pulling out the documents. What am I excited to do? I'm excited to see him. I don't want the documents. I want to wrap my arms around him. I want to play with him. And I want to play Legos with him. And play Ninjago with him. And um, I want him. I don't want the legal documents. The legal documents are important. And the same is true of justification. The legality and the forensic nature of justification is so important. Because you're going to be assaulted to the left and to the right that you ought not to be uh, in God's presence and to know God. And the reality is, is that's, that's true. 
because of your sin. But that's not true based on justification. That's not true because of what Jesus has done. But what he does is he secures us into a love relationship and he feels about us 10,000 times what we feel about our own kids. He, he enjoys us. He, he declares us to be sons and no longer slaves. And, and what he secured for us is a reconciliation that feels an awful lot like family. So when I say, come home to Jesus, I mean that. Come home to him. Just to wrap up, just, just three points on those, those three things. Just, I mean, I'm talking 30 seconds. If this is true, let the perfect life of Christ give you peace. Man, Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. And only Christianity says it's finished. So if you're trying to complete your salvation, you know, complete your acceptance before God based on, based on your works and not faith alone in Jesus' works. In other words, if you're dismissing Jesus and trying to become something before your version of God, stop and experience the peace of knowing God because of what Jesus has done. Number two, remember that Jesus died to pardon you and empower you. Sanctification is becoming what you are by the Spirit-empowered work and effort. He empowers us. He pardons us and He empowers us. And lastly, Jesus died and rose for us to be reconciled to God and call Him Father. I always marvel when I read in the Gospel, Jesus is on the cross And over and over again, he screams and breathes his last. And the next phrase is, and behold. Behold what? Jesus just screamed and cried his last. He just gave up his life. And it says, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. In other words, the dividing wall between us and God, that rightful, legal dividing wall between us and God, that's what Jesus was securing when he was screaming out his last and saying, it is finished. The curtain is ripped apart. And this new covenant relationship with God is now beginning. And it's working itself backwards in us. The kingdom is secure because Jesus the King has secured it. And now he's opened up the curtain and through his spirit, We're coming home to him more and more. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.